Welcome to OncoFarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of OncoFarm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy here at East Tennessee State University. It's a wonderful fall day here at uh, Mountain Home, Tennessee. I'm uh, going to talk about some FDA updates. haven't done that in a while. And we're going to start things off talking about the early uh, adjuvant use of abemocyclib in breast cancer. So on uh, the 12th of uh, October here, so two days ago, the FDA approved abemocyclib uh, in addition to endocrine therapy for early breast cancer. Now, the details here are really, really important. This approval is based off of monarchy, or monarchy. I'm going to call it monarchy, which was... Uh, covered uh, on this podcast uh, and published, um, I think, over a year ago in the Journal uh, of Clinical Oncology. Uh, it was published, I've got it in front of me. Um, yeah, it was published in 2020, uh, looks like September. So a little over a year ago is when this was, uh, this was published. Now, at the time, you know, this is looking at uh, women with uh, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, breast cancer that was aggressive enough they received chemo generally like 95% received either neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemo and then they had to have certain high risk features okay and that could be a KI67 above 20% that could be node positive like four nodes uh, three no one to three nodes if one of if the tumor was a grade 3 or if the tumor size was more than 5 centimeters there are several different criteria that got them at high risk so after they finished their chemo, if they got chemo, they were randomized to a bemocyclib or not, in addition to standard uh, endocrine therapy. Now, the bemocyclib was for two years, and that whole big thing they found was uh, a statistically significant improvement in invasive disease-free survival favoring a bemocyclib. Uh, now, that hazard ratio was 0.75, so at 25% improvement over time in invasive disease-free survival. So invasive disease-free survival is not disease-free survival. Uh, it's not overall survival. It's it's time for randomization until there is uh, recurrence of invasive disease, so not ductal carcinoma in situ. Now, that could be on the same breast, opposite breast, regionally, distant. Uh, it could be another cancer or death. Okay, So it is a surrogate marker, and I'm not sure from my research how predictive that is of overall survival in breast cancer. Uh, as the news says, this is the first drug approved for early breast cancer in something like 20 years. So... Um, you know, the, the, uh, the future benefit uh, in terms of overall survival is unknown at this point, all right? Now, that's the, the gist of monarchy. Now, this approval, while based on monarchy, is based off of uh, really a subgroup of a type of patient in monarchy. Unbeknownst to me, when I first read monarchy, it wasn't until you look at the protocol here that there are actually two cohorts in monarchy. So cohort one is node positive plus a... Uh, um, um, node positive, and then you either have to have the tumor size above five centimeters uh, or grade three tumor, um, regardless of KI67. All right. Then there's a cohort two that is just node positive and, and KI67 above 20%. This is based on an analysis of cohort one. So cohort one was looking at either four nodes uh, or more, or one to three nodes if you had a, a five a big tumor five centimeters T2 uh, disease or grade three disease. All right. Didn't matter what your KI67 was in cohort one. This approval is based off of those people in cohort one who had a KI67 above 20%. So it is a subgroup of a subgroup. 
in other words, is what this appears as I look through it. So it, it took me a while to wrap my head around this because none of the numbers added up until I saw this cohort one business when they talk about it. So the key thing here is don't assume everyone with early stage breast cancer that's hormone positive, HER2 negative, qualifies for a bimacyclic. Uh, you want to make sure you're testing KS67 for it. And then do they have four nodes? Okay, they have four nodes positive and KI67 above 20%. They get they, they would qualify based on this approval. If it's one node, uh, two nodes, three nodes, then they have to have a grade three tumor or a T2 disease more than five centimeters, uh, along with that KI67 above 20%. Now, if you're listening to this, you're like, what is KI67? So KI67 is an antigen that's usually only present in the nucleus, but during active cell division, so not G0s, but when the cells are actively dividing, KI67 is then expressed on the cell surface, and you can stain for it and find it uh, on, on, on slides. So a an ALL, uh, a Burkitt lymphoma, a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, these will all have KI67s above 90%, very actively growing. To give you some idea of what a KI67 in breast cancer means, uh, molecular, there are, it's now kind of recognized that there are four distinct subtypes molecularly of breast cancer. There's luminal A, which is hormone positive, HER2 negative, and a low KI67. Luminal B, HER2, or uh, sorry, not HER2, but hormone positive, HER2 negative or positive with a higher KI67 than luminal A. And that cutoff appears to be 14 or 15%. Then there's the basal type, which is usually triple negative and then HER2 enriched, all right? So what is considered high KI67 uh, when you look at the difference between luminal A, luminal B breast cancer is around 14, 15%. So this is a higher threshold than that. It is 20%, which means... Uh, these are, you know, the higher KI67s um, in luminal B. So even a, a distinct subgroup within luminal B breast cancer. As we're seeing uh, this trend in oncology, you see it in non-small cell lung cancer is uh, we are, are uh, the algorithms are getting more complicated as we learn more about the biology disease and we figure out which biologic characteristics of disease confer greater activity of certain drugs. That appears to be what is happening here with abemocyclib. Now, just these folks in cohort one, KI67 above 20%, that's kind of the key thing to take home. KI67 above 20%, that invasive disease-free survival at, th at uh, three years is 79% with hormone therapy alone, up to 86.1% when you add two years of abemocycle. That's an absolute improvement in invasive disease-free survival of, of just over 7%, a number needed to treat 14 patients. I have to put 14 more patients on the bemocyclib to permit one invasive disease-free survival. Generally, a number needed to treat, I say less than 20 is clinically significant. More than 100, we don't know. Probably not. Between 20 and 100, you know, it, it really depends. So this would be an impressive absolute benefit. However, that is invasive disease-free survival. When you look at the whole number of events, not just those by three years, uh, the difference is 5.8%. Uh, I think I think this is probably going to translate to an overall survival benefit. Uh, however, all those folks who got endocrine therapy alone, if they do have recurrence of disease, they're going to get a cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitor along with second-line hormonal treatment like fulvestrin. So it may not show an overall survival benefit. Uh, I think the key thing here is his adjuvant treatment. So if we talk back, uh, if you hearken back to my critique of ADARN, adjuvant OC-mertinib, are we... Are we pre-treating recurrent disease or are we curing patients? So that's really what I want to see is are we curing more patients? And I think that's 
That's what we're doing with adjuvant chemo. We're trying to kill patients. And this is, we're, we're enriching the patients. Are, no, we're enriching them. We're definitely not enriching them. We're deport, we're pouring them. When you look at what two years of abemocyclob is going to cost, about 400 grand probably, almost a half a million dollars. Uh, but this population is enriched with the more aggressive type of hormone-positive breast cancer, that KI-67 above 20%. We know luminal B with that high, higher KI-67 has a poorer prognosis than our luminal A patients. So it would make sense that a drug like abemocyclib, which I think of as many chemo as a cyclin-dependent for six inhibitor, is going to be more active with a higher KI-67, a higher proliferative index for any micrometastatic disease. I think that would make sense. Um, that it would lead to more cures. But we'll have to see what the overall survival looks like. At this point, fewer than 5% of people uh, in this cohort one with KI-67 above 20% have died. So 95% of folks are still alive, so it's too early to see overall survival benefit and probably going to have to wait several more years until we see that. In the meantime, it's already FDA approved and people are already going to be updating their treatment plans to add abemocyclib for these hormone-positive breast cancer patients after their chemo uh, once they're ready to start endocrine therapy to add uh, to add abemocyclib. <clears throat> so abemocyclib is of the three cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors. Abemocyclib has the most diarrhea compared to ribocyclib or palbocyclib and the least neutropenia. Um, um, so the pro is that invasive disease-free survival benefit that we hope translates to overall survival, that we hope it does. The negatives are the $400,000 price tag. If you just look at the cost, like per tablet, what I see is it's 280 bucks a tablet, 150 milligrams twice a day, 280, you know, times two a day, times 24 months, uh, and that, that kind of adds up to 400 grand by my back of the napkin math. Uh, you got to take it for two years, eight out of 10 well of diarrhea, usually pretty well controlled with anti-diarrheals, uh, uh, 18% grade three neutropenia, even with a lower risk of neutropenia, 2.7% interstitial lung disease, uh, 2.3 VTE uh, compared to 0.5%. Um, less arthralgias with abemocyclib compared to hormonal therapy. Uh, and arthralgia is the leading cause of not adherence to AIs. So something interesting there. By the way, they could either get um, tamoxifen or AI here uh, as their endocrine therapy. Uh, more fatigue, 38% versus 16%. And fatigue is actually has been a dose-limiting toxicity in some of the studies of, uh, of abemocyclib. So um, this is a, a drug that is not going to help the majority of patients with breast cancer because it's not all early stage breast cancer. It's just luminal B and just really a subset of luminal B, the highest risk luminal B. And this definition, the criteria between luminal A, luminal B, there's, it's, think of this as a Venn diagram with some overlaps. Not everyone falls neatly in a luminal A, luminal B, or basal-like. Now, there are about 280,000 new cases of breast cancer a year, okay? Now, most of those are probably not metastatic in early stage, people who might be candidates for this. Um, and even if, let's say that's 200,000 people with, you know, early stage breast cancer, not metastatic. And let's say just 10% are luminal B. I see 11% cited in, uh, in the American Cancer Society document. I'm not sure that's true. I've seen data of 33%, 14%, 32% from uh, studies uh, from different countries. I mean, even if it's just 10%, of 200,000, you're talking 20,000 cases of luminal B breast cancer, of people who might benefit from this. That's still more than the number of new cases of CML a year. So even though it's a subset of a subset of a breast cancer cohort, 
and a lot of breast cancer. A lot of new people probably going to be starting abemaciclib. Okay, so uh, so be prepared uh, for more abemaciclib. It's also uh, it's 28 days of a 20 day cycle. It's every day. There's no three week on, one week off like there's with palbociclib, and that's because uh, you don't have that neutropenia as much as with the other CDK4-6 inhibitors. So you don't need that week for the marrow to recover. Now. You may be asking, what about palbociclib? What about ribociclib? Uh, could they be used? Well, we do have a study, uh, Penelope, uh, which was uh, palbociclib in sort of a similar uh, idea in addition to endocrine therapy uh, in the adjuvant setting. Uh, that was only one year of palbociclib. It did not show a benefit uh, for patients receiving palbociclib. Now, 75% of people on the Penelope arm, the Pal or the, in the Penelope trial, the Palbociclib study, uh, 75% had a Ki67 of less than 15%, which means fewer than 25% had a Ki67 above 20%, which is really all that this approval ap applies to. So you have to then ask, what if Palbo, what if Ribociclib had done a study just in this high Ki67, this highly selected demographic, would they have seen an invasive disease-free survival benefit? Unknown questions, fun to ask though, aren't they? All right, so that's, that's, that's my thoughts on early abemaciclib. Uh, the day after this approval, or was it the day before? The days all run together. It was the day after the FDA approved uh, pembrolizumab uh, in combination with chemo in the first line treatment of, of metastatic cervical cancer. This is based on Keno 826, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Kind of the unique thing here to talk about is Keno 826 included all patients. This approval is only for PDL1 positive. At a, uh, combined proportion score of 1% or more. Now, like 89% of people in Keno 826, of women in Keno 826, were PDL1 positive. So most of those folks were, they did hierarchical testing for the intent to treat population, everybody, then CPS 1 plus, 1% or more, and then CPS 10% or more, both for PFS and OS. So they do have um, they a priori, so before the study, they plan to test it just for CPS, and that's where the benefit was not in the PDL1 negative. So that's why the approval is just for PDL1 negative uh, with Pembro, uh, and we mentioned that on the study. Um, ruxolitinib was approved for chronic graft versus host disease. Don't think uh, we've talked about that before, but ruxolitinib is uh, no stranger to those of you in uh, allo transplant world, uh, and it's used for graft versus host disease, uh, and then. Uh, Brexucabtagene, autolucel, was FDA approved for uh, relapse refractory ALL, uh, B cell precursor ALL, uh, the very first of this month. Uh, Brexucabtagene, autolucel, was previously approved for mantle cell lymphoma, so this is not a new chemical entity, just an expanded indication. Uh, I think it was like a 50-some percent response rate in about 58 patients. Um, it's CAR-T, uh, it's CD19, something that we've talked about before. Uh, I don't know that it, if you're not, a, if you're like, uh, like us, and you don't do CAR-T, doesn't necessarily change anything because you are already probably considering your, you know, your relapse refractory LL patients for a referral to a CAR-T center for, uh, for something like that, whether it's a, an FDA-approved product or an in-development CAR-T at one of these, uh, these big centers. So those are kind of the updates uh, from recent, um, you know, recent news and publication and note uh, from the last uh, month or so. Uh, got a couple... Um, got one podcast in the can, a landmark of Oncofarm. Uh, if you if you follow me on Twitter uh, at FarmDeetNib, you'll kind of know what that is. Uh, also working on a little mini series, so to speak, of the different career fields in oncology pharmacy that I hope will be out by the end of the year. 
uh, and hopefully get a few more uh, a few more guests on the pod so you don't have to hear me um, thank you so much for listening uh, you can follow me on Twitter as I mentioned earlier and follow the podcast on both Instagram and Twitter at Pod. and until I talk to you again remember doses matter Thank you.